It's a type of photography almost every one of us has tried at some point or another. And in my case, I haven't been very good at it. But when you see today's guest, you'll understand why I wish he would just take my pictures for me. It's all about photography reflections on this episode of Behind the Shot. Hi, welcome to Behind the Shot. I'm Steve Brazel, your host. This is the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots from conception to completion, all those stories and challenges that happen in between. Before I bring my guest on today, I do want to remind you that, uh, depending on when you're watching this, of course, I have a new class coming up at Princeton Photo Workshops. It's a live remote learning class. It's happening in April of 2021, three consecutive weeks, one night per week we're doing this class. It's going to be a lot of fun. If you want information on that, all you got to do is head to their website. It's PrincetonPhotoWorkshop.com. And if you go to any of my sites, SteveBrazel.com or BehindTheShot.tv, I've got links to my remote learning stuff there as well, so it makes it easier for you to find them. And speaking of BehindTheShot.tv, this episode, as with every episode, you will be able to see the show notes for today, a little blurb that I wrote on my guest today, a small gallery of his work as well. Find links to all the ways that you can subscribe to the podcast in your podcast apps, or for that matter, head on over to YouTube, either one. And that brings us up. I want to jump right into today's guest. So my guest today, I mentioned at the very beginning, it's a style of photography that I've tried. Sometimes I succeed, sometimes I don't. But when you look at Adam Jones' work, they all succeed. Adam, how are you? Steve, I'm great. Uh, Everything's wonderful. Thank you for having me here today. It's my pleasure. I am excited to have you for a number of different reasons we'll get into as as we go through the show. First of which is uh, you are like my 10th Canon Explorer of Light this year. And I so respect that group and that organization and what it does. And you've been a Canon Explorer of Light for a long time, right? It's been about 15 years. And let me tell you, it's been an honor to be involved with this group of uh, highly talented photographers. And that's really, you know what? That's really the most simple, clean way to say it. It's a group of photographers that is just highly talented. The best of the best, including some of the new ones. I just had one of the newer Canon Explorers of Light, Atiba Jefferson, on amazing photographer, used to work for the Lakers, uh, is well-known, super well-known for skateboarding uh, photography, which my son came home and said, all my friends are really impressed you got to interview Atiba. That was really wild. And that's kind of what Canon Explorers of Light is. When when people find out you're, you're an EOL, Explorer of Light, how do you describe that program to them? Well, I think Canon actually sums it up in one of their statements in like their mission statement for the group is that it's a group of some of the most talented photographers that love to teach, love to share and love to give back to the photographic community. And I think that's really what separates us from a lot of other folks. There's a lot of great photographers out there. Some people can teach and some are not quite so good at it. So we and like some, to pride ourselves. Yeah, and some don't give back. You and I kind of talked in the green room a little bit about some of the things people, I don't want to share this particular piece of information. And and I think that's <laughs> another good part is it's a really good, it, it's an educational group more than it is a, a marketing part of Canon, although it's a marketing part of Canon too. You, Absolutely. You, as I look through your resume... So your resume is pretty shocking. National Geographic Books, Time, Life Magazine, National Wildlife Federation, Audubon, Sierra Club, Disney. You've got nine coffee table books. 
<laughs> You've been doing this a while. I have. I've been at it for uh, about 30 years full time, and it's it's been a great career for me. We know we're in some challenging times right now, but uh, we'll get over it and keep moving forward. Yeah, this is a blip in the in the scheme of things. Uh, your, you know, what's interesting to me is when I think of you, correct me if I'm wrong here. I think of you, nature, wildlife, travel type photographer. That's dead on Steve. That's exactly right. I kind of bounce around. I'll go for a while and shoot wildlife for a, a summer or so, pretty much kind of exclusively. Then I bounce over to travel, shoot some cultural things, and then I'm back to landscapes and I kind of just keep revisiting uh, different areas of, uh, interest. Uh, so it's, it's been fun to have this wide variety. I do macro, I do wildlife, I do big telephoto, real wide angle. And I actually started my career in underwater photography. Oh, really? Indeed. All flash photography underwater. Interesting. I have a friend who used to do a lot of underwater stuff. Well, okay. But here's, what's weird to me. Based on let's let's talk now, right? The nature, the wildlife, the the travel landscape stuff. Your client list, Eddie Bauer makes sense. Canon obviously makes sense. Ford, Honda, and Miller Beer are in there, <laughs> which when I think landscape, that's not kind of what I think. It, it, is that the type of stuff you shot for them, or was it more commercial stuff? No, actually, it's uh, not all, but some of those are stock agency sales to the, the big corporations as such. I have had very limited number of actual assignments with big corporations. I have done some, but I went into my local Honda dealer and there on the wall was a poster of one of my shots. And I'm telling the, the head mechanic, hey, that's my shot. And he's rolling his eyes. Oh, yeah, sure it is, buddy. Yeah, but it really was. That's got to be kind of cool. You you mentioned stock photography. So I do want to mention Getty Images. I was not familiar with Danita. What is it? Delamont? D Danita Delamont. Yes. She's actually uh, become my top agency. Interesting. Uh, Getty was the big, uh, big dog in the game for many, many years, but they sort of won the race to the bottom. And uh, uh, my smaller agencies are now well outperforming Getty. So take notes for you budding uh, stock photographers. <laughs> and and go Getty. look up Danita Delamont <laughs> stock photography because you never absolutely. know. They may be looking for somebody to represent too. I mean, absolutely. You they mentioned the names in there. So the competition stuff. Yeah. And, and again, your, your summary of Getty is, is scary <laughs> spot on that it's the race to the bottom. It really has been the race to the bottom. Well, it's similar to the what's happening with our musicians these days. It's yes. the same uh, business model. Yeah, yeah, it's um the world of the arts has has uh has suffered in in recent years and I'm hoping that the world as a whole starts to realize again the importance of the arts, music education, photographic education, whatever the art of your choice is 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 important and you, like so many others that do what you do at the level, you know, that you do it, you also do give back to the community. You, you're an educator. You do your own private classes, online classes, one-on-one -on -one stuff, private workshops. I am kind of curious, when it comes to the education side of things, what is, because we all love photography, right? We were talking Absolutely. also in the green room. You're using a 5D4 like I am for your webcam with a 24-7. We're, we're gearheads. We're geeks. Okay. But when it comes to the education side of it, what's your favorite part of 
being a photography educator? Well, my favorite part is when you have these student or students and you, you just get to that aha moment. It's where it sinks in. It's like, golly, I finally grasped that relationship between shutter speed, aperture, ISO, or or something as simple as turning the polarizer the way, right way. And they see just the colors pop through. And uh, just to know that you help that person take that next step forward uh, in their photography career and to express their vision. Yeah, which makes total sense. I mean, I, there, there really is something magical when I've taught either photography, or I also do some teaching in martial arts. And, and, and when, when you see that light bulb go off in somebody's head, there really is something suddenly that makes it all worth it at that one moment, regardless of what level that person is at. I mentioned exactly. nature, travel, and wildlife, landscape, that type of stuff. We're going to talk really landscape today. Well, Steve, the other thing that's been great for me doing all the workshops and the travel and the tours and all that is that I have met some incredible people along the way. I get to, to run into very successful people, some high-end Microsoft guys and other big business moguls have traveled with me. And it's just amazing to hear their stories, how they started and how their career developed and put them in the position they are in today to be able to afford to go anywhere, do anything they want to do. So. I've met just a tremendous array of wonderful people along the way. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's one of the cool things about photography. It really does. It's all inclusive, you know, as it were. With, with the type of photography that you do, I mean, you pretty much do every type of nature and wildlife and landscape and travel. What's the most challenging subject? <laughs> Oh, I think wildlife's probably the most challenging just simply because, you know, it has no understanding or need to want to cooperate with anything I want it to do. And, you know, I'm at the mercy of the light, the weather, the wind direction, the temperature, just so many variables that are completely out of my control. Uh, you know, you make your best guess. You hopefully are somewhat of a good naturalist and you understand what's likely to happen at any given time and you recognize the signs that, oh, it's, it's displaying this behavior. So this is about to happen. But again, there's no guarantees. You can put in countless hours in the field and sometimes you're rewarded. And as they say, sometimes you're the bug on the windshield. Well, and what's interesting what you just touched on, I think is under, under mentioned. You, you phrased it as hopefully you're a good naturalist and know what's going to happen. But to me, I would word that as hopefully you understand your subject. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Knowing there is no substitution for knowing your subject. That's right. The more you know, the more you can show is the saying. So if you had to pick one, right, you're, you're on an island, uh, a desert island is not going to fit in this scenario. <laughs> you're, you're banished to one land of photography. What's your favorite of all of in, these in genres? One, land, one area? Yeah, like of all these genres that you have, what is your favorite part of photography? It, it, do you prefer the wildlife or the you know, landscape? I, if you could I only choose around, one. I, I go through these moods and, you know, sometimes it's just so rewarding to get that great bird shot or the moose or the elk or whatever it might be. And then, you know, I turn the corner a day later and you're in the Tetons and you're shooting a great landscape. To me, that's just as rewarding. So, so I so, like it okay. all. Let's say that you're doing them all. Do you change hats in some way when you do it? I mean, in other words, I'm trying to think how to word this. In other words, when you're behind your camera, 
and you're either tracking a bear or you're tracking a beautiful sunset at arches, right? Right. Does your mindset change in such a way that it's almost like take off the wildlife hat and put on the landscape hat? Or, yeah, or so is it, it more abs- is it more consistent between those genres than it is not consistent in your mindset? I, w- I would say it's more consistent. Usually if you're out doing landscapes, you know, you're committed to doing the landscape, waiting for the light to get good. But hey, if this big, beautiful bull elk walks out into the scene, I can switch hats in an instant. And, you know, I can either incorporate it into the overall scene or I can, you know, get to break out the big telephoto and do, a, you know, a more traditional portrait shot. But, but but is there that, like as you're doing composition and stuff do you do you think differently between those genres? Uh, a bit. I think the landscape offers you more time to study the composition and move around where the, the the wildlife can be very fleeting and you've got to make split second decisions on composition left or right in the viewfinder right. high or low. And a lot of people really struggle with that because they're so focused on the subject matter in the center that they they can't see the periphery of what's going on in that little rectangle. But, yeah, uh, it, I, it is I've, a challenge. I've had that happen with music photography before, where I always try and remind myself to keep my my secondary eye open because I've had it where I'm photographing a guitarist, but then through my peripheral vision, I'll notice the lead singer climbing up on a stack of speakers to jump off. <laughs> and if I, w- if I had that eye closed, I would miss that shot. So sometimes, Absolutely. you know, that type of thing. So let's get into today's image. And before I do, I just want to mention, if you are listening to the audio version of this show or any of the shows, head to behindtheshot.tv, find the actual link for this particular episode, And check out the blog post that I wrote uh, about my guest today and check out the small gallery of Adam's work. And you'll be able in that small gallery to take a look at today's shot. While you are there, you can also find ways to subscribe. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please, if you like what you're seeing, do subscribe and make sure that you hit the bell as well so that you get notified for everything. And and I want to bring up one thing that happened recently. I was on uh, John Cornicello, who, uh, or Cornicello, I'm not sure how John pronounces his last name. He's well known for having been involved with Creative Live, doing stuff on set for many, many, many years. And he has his own show now called Photography Conversations or Photo Conversations. And I was on that. And while I was on it, my buddy Aunt Pruitt came on. And my and Aunt mentioned what I am about to do. So with each and every show, Adam, I try for the audio listeners to describe the photo so that as they're driving down the road, they can kind of picture it in their head. And this in and of itself is one of those chores that is really difficult at times. Now for this particular shot, I don't even know where to start. So I've been in scenes like this. I've tried to photograph scenes like this and you kind of nailed everything that I end up sacrificing at some point in, in my choices that I do. And that's part of the reason I love this show is I'm, I'm excited to find out some of the choices that you made on the shot. So for those of you on the audio feed, let me try and explain this to you. This might be the most beautiful, awesome reflection shot I have ever seen. It's a beautiful either lake or river. I'm guessing it's a river. I'll find out in a minute. The entire lower third of this image is the water with a with a reflection of what's above the water line, right? But the entire lower third of the image, almost half of the image is the water. It's reflecting what's above and what's above 
are these beautiful trees, tall like pine and other types of trees on the left with color. On the right-hand bank, gorgeous, bright colors. And in the far distance, yet perfectly in focus and sharp and exposure nailed, is this rigid. It, what struck me, this struck me like Banff in a way. It's got this rigid mountain line with snow-capped mountains, and then you've got the sky. And as you're looking at the sky, you did, this is where I would have screwed this up completely, right? As you're looking at the sky, it's this beautiful, natural, I want to emphasize that, natural sky. It's not oversaturated, stupid blue. The clouds are not clipped to pure white. The clouds, I'm going to go the other way too, because this is one of the things I see people do when they overprocess. The, the clouds are not suddenly made this weird black that clouds are never that color, right? <laughs> it is so perfectly treated. The vibrant colors in the trees make me feel like I'm in Acadia uh, National Park. Just, uh, wonderful. And then here's here's the thing that seals it all, right? And by the way, let me add, there's there's detail everywhere. There's detail in the trees, in the mountains, the cracks of the mountains. There's detail in the snow, uh, the water. Is, I'll get to water in a second. The water, like a river, snakes from like the lower left across the bottom and then curves back around at about the midway point. So you get this kind of kind of leading line S curve going in it. And here's the killer. This is what makes the shot for me. I don't in my head picture water being completely still. We see a lot of reflection shots where the water is like a mirror and it's cool. I love them. Don't misunderstand me. This one, however, makes me feel like I'm standing on the bank of the water because it is perfectly still. It is mirror like reflection, except there's a little ripple here and there, right? For whatever reason, there's some ripples in certain areas that make it more real to me. And I just absolutely love it. So it's your shot. How'd I do? It's great. I, I couldn't have done it any better myself, Steve. That's awesome. <laughs> the gold okay. trees in the center uh, that are spotlighted with the sunlight are aspen trees in their full autumn glory. Uh, and you nailed it. I am standing. I've got one tripod leg in the water. Oh, uh, so you literally bit. are right there. I am right down on it. And I have to say... So many of the photographers stayed up at the car, elevated on a little bit higher elevation, maybe 10, 15 feet higher. The shot is down on the water. I mean, there's another shot that's very nice from up above that I did shoot, and I think I included in my selection. But uh, I wanted to be right on the water. And there were some ducks and geese over on that far right-hand side that were kind of stirred up the water. And the wind, the wind's the killer on these mornings like this. Uh, we were unbelievably fortunate. I want to touch on some of the, the technical side of things. Exposure and camera wise, obviously Canon Explorer of Light, this was shot with a Canon. Which body was this? This was uh, with the, the brand new EOS R5. Oh, I want. And what lens? Uh, the 24 to 70 adapted with the EF to, to R uh, adapter. Uh, which okay. works flawlessly on there. It's unbelievable. And do you know the, uh, I looked at the EXIF data and it showed aperture priority. That is, that's correct. Do you know what your exposure was on this? Yeah, I do. It was uh, F8, 125th of a second, uh, 100 ISO. 
And I did have a polarizer on the there as well. Oh, okay. Which which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean that would add to the sky. It would add to the water, the color popping, but being natural. In the exposure data, I noticed that you had an exposure bias of minus one. So an aperture priority, AV mode, aperture value mode. Uh, you have the ability to let the camera do most of the choices, although you can override some of them in certain ways. But one of the ways that you can override that for those that are watching is you can simply do an exposure compensation. And you were at minus one on this. So before we get into the details of the shot itself, explain to me your, as you're standing here with one tripod leg in the water, explain (laughs) to me your thought process on choosing aperture priority ending up with uh, F8 for that aperture priority so that it would then go and choose one one twenty-fifth of a second, et cetera. And then you drop the exposure of stuff. Explain how you arrived at all of that. Okay, Steve, just uh, so we're clear, normally on my wildlife, I shoot almost all of that in manual. Okay. I personally see no reason to, to shoot a landscape that's not moving in manual. I, I just switch over to aperture priority. I pick whatever aperture I want couple considerations, picking the aperture and then just let the camera give me the shutter speed. But the uh, R5 has a live histogram right in the viewfinder. So I can check that exposure prior to taking the shot. And I could tell that the snow, the snow-capped mountains and the clouds were clipping just a little bit. So I bracketed a full stop under, knowing that the dynamic range of the camera is quite good, that I could pull up the shadows. So this took some nice uh, bit of processing afterwards because the left side was fairly dark. So I brightened that side up and I really appreciate you commenting, Steve, on the non-overpolarized, overcolorized, saturated blue sky. I had uh, some shots in outdoor photographer a few few years ago and the guy commented, man, we don't see skies look right anymore. (laughs) No, and and you know what though? That to Pardon? me, it's so funny because it's a landscape, right? But one of the yes. first things that will take me out of a scene that will stop me from believing I'm there is a fake looking sky. I agree. And it's so easy, especially out West where you got crystal clear skies. And uh, had this been shot with you a- You've been to LA lately, have you? <laughs> this is shot at 70 millimeters. So I don't have much of a problem turning the polarizer to to darken the blue in the sky. Now, had I shot this on a wider 24 millimeter setting, you got to really be careful about using a polarizer because it will polarize one portion of the one side of the sky way more than the other and looks really unnatural and a little bit difficult to get rid of. Okay. Oh, good tip. I like that. Uh, White balance wise, were you were you auto white balance here or manual? You know, I, I have not been an auto white balance fan until the EOS R5. And it, the color out of that camera is so good, I have switched back to auto white balance. Uh, it's doing a great job. Interesting. This, That's really interesting. Yes. So I, I look through go, one thing what, I do with every guest. And with you, I lost a good hour browsing through. I look at portfolios <laughs> looking at like common threads between not only shots in a particular gallery, but but shots as a whole as a photographer. Like one of the things I, I see on portfolio critiques all the time is I don't know which photographer I'm looking at because they're different. So I look for common threads in a portfolio. And 
as I look through your portfolio over and over and over again, you have these types of shots, these amazing reflection shots that I've failed on more often than not. <laughs> uh, I can mention some of the mistakes I make later if need be, but you seem to nail them. So as you're standing on this edge, and it's a river, right? It's not a lake. That's correct. It's a river. Okay. Where is this, by the way? It's this is Oxbow Bend in Grand Teton National Park, an extremely common overlook to shoot at. There's probably 150 photographers there any given morning. Okay. So as you're standing here, I, I really want to understand your thought process because, again, when I've done this with various cameras from my phone to my 5D Mark IV to whatever, there are certain things I mess up on and I'm not necessarily even always sure why. Like I've had it, which is unnatural. I've had it where my reflection is brighter than the, than the real, right? And that's backwards. The reflection <laughs> is almost always darker than the real. I that's, don't even know how I did it. correct. So I'm kind of curious. You walk up to this spot. What made you choose to put a leg in the water? What made you choose to frame the composition the way that you did? What are you, what are you, contemplating as you're looking at this because I guess a good way to word it is do you just walk up to a scene and just see this <laughs> or do you have to work as hard at it to see this as we do <laughs> no I, I I that's not to brag on me or anything but I almost know instantly what I really want. Uh, I walk up to it and it's the big drama I I shoot tight first and then start going wider to include more I'm very uh, I'm all about eliminating, you know, landscape, land, wildlife, anything. It's about the lighting. We're, we're photographing with light. So light's my number one consideration. Color, then placement in the composition. But let me just tell you, Steve, this was our third visit to this scene on the same morning. I was there with a private client. We spent a week in Yellowstone and a week in the Tetons together, both of us with brand new R5s. And... We got up, we were here well before there was any light. We waited almost an hour for the sun to come up, just thinking there's gonna be 200 photographers there and we better get our little spot on the gravel bar. That's why the leg was in the water. <laughs> so nobody'd walk in front of me. Which makes sense, okay. And so we, we shot the the pre-dawn glow, the absolute first light on the on the mountains. And we said, ah, we got it. You know, We shot really wide, we shot tight, we did everything. Then we drove off looking for wildlife. Didn't have a lot of luck, came back, yeah, it was good, but it wasn't great. Went around another loop, came back. I mean, this can, is can late I interrupt? morning. Can I interrupt? Because sure. you just said something that I want to I want to expound on. Sure. So you're coming back. You're going to leave. You're going to come back again, clearly. But at this point, you said, yeah, it just wasn't quite right. Why? What well, was there it? Weren't what, many so clouds. I, I guess what I want people to understand is when you go up to this scene and you shoot it. And I always tell people, look, if, if go back, go back multiple times. But I'm curious for somebody at your level, when you shoot it and you chimp the back of the screen and say, it's not quite right, you know, I'm going to add the word yet, right? It's not quite right yet. What is it that's not right? Well, our first shot in the morning was spectacular. We had some low-lying clouds. They went pink and everything was great. It was just a phenomenal shot. We thought, well, well this is great. If we don't get another shot today, we're happy with this. But we drove off, like I said, and we came back, and it wasn't quite good because the cloud, the sky had kind of just gone blah. There wasn't much happening other than the reflection. 
So we drove off and came back an hour or so later. This is probably 10 o'clock in the morning, which is really late to be out shooting landscapes. But the clouds had rolled back in, and all of a sudden it was a completely different shot. The clouds just kind of hold your eye in the viewfinder. And my client that was with me, that's what I kept telling him. He goes, well, how should I frame this shot of the mountains? I said, well, it's about the mountains and the clouds. Wherever you have clouds, if you got something to fill that blank sky, you can go wide. But if you don't have something interesting up there, we need to zoom in on Mount Moran, the, the big mountain on the right, and make that our focal point. You know, I, I, the worst thing to me is to try to include everything. And there's a whole lot of blank nothing in, in the photograph or a, or a real crummy foreground that doesn't add anything. Well, that's the, to me, the bane of the wild, uh, the wide angle photographer. Exactly. And, and, you know, this, you just triggered a thought in me and that is Rick Salmon and his old saying of, you know, fill the frame, which name of the games to fill the frame. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Somebody Rick. long before him probably came up with that saying, <laughs> but most people think fill the frame as a tight detail shot. And what's awesome here is this is a wide, I mean, comparatively wide 70 millimeter uh, shot. And yet, even though it's a wide landscape with a mountain and trees and a river and sky, you have filled the frame. And you exposed everything. You kept every single highlight in this thing. It is absolutely amazing. So when I walk up to a scene like this, and this, by the way, is probably part of the reason that I screw up it so bad. I don't see landscapes. It's it's a flaw in my personality problem. I, <laughs> I walk up and sometimes here's the thing. When I see a good landscape on a photo, I can look at it. I can tear it apart. I can dissect it. I understand it all. You know what? When I'm on scene on the side of this river, I, I, I struggle. I'm not going to say I don't see it, but I struggle. And this is everything that I want in an image. So understanding your, your kind of process as you're shooting, it really, really helps. The light here is beautiful. It's obviously all natural light. It's the right light. It's the right time of day, which is weird because you said it was later in the day. Right. Typically, I would have been perfectly happy with the, the golden light in the morning. I mean, we had pink clouds in the top of Mount Moran, which is glowing red. And you think, well, that's the shot. Well, it was great, but I like this one better. I, I saw this as we pulled around the curve and the road. and Oh, wow, we got to stop and shoot this again. Well, and here's one of the things I think uh, uh, beginners or you know amateurs, advanced amateurs struggle with. We see every one of our shots, right? It's the highlight reel versus, you know, what's on the cutting floor. We <laughs> see every one of our shots and we think we're the only one that makes 999 errors out of a thousand shots. <laughs> but you and I yeah, both know yeah. that even people at an EOL level get shots they don't like. So I'm kind of curious, how often does it happen to you where you actually go out to shoot and you want to get a shot? And just the day ends up being, you know what? The shot wasn't there. That happens to you, right? Oh, absolutely. It happens to everyone. Again, Mother Nature doesn't cooperate or you're right. in the wrong place. You're too early. You're too late. You know, there's just a million things that can go wrong. But a certain amount of serendipity involved and a certain amount of just being out in the field often enough and putting, putting yourself in educated guest areas or well-known places like this and hope for the best. I mean, you know, you can't compete with the local photographers that drive by this thing, you know, 150 times a year and I'm there for a week and get lucky on one day. Yeah, which, yeah, I totally agree. So you mentioned this had some post work on it because 
The left, by the time you dropped the exposure bias a, a full stop, the left was dark. You and That's I both correct. know shots don't come out of camera if we shoot raw. They don't come out perfect, right? Absolutely not. This one, somehow, you coaxed out, and I'm guessing part of it is just the the, the R5 sensor and color palette, even in a raw image, but somehow you've managed to coax out of this this vibrant, alive feel. So walk me through really quick your process of ingest. So you come back, you sit down at your computer, you pull the card out of the camera. What's your, what's your, your workflow for ingesting these images into the computer and and editing? And for that matter, you know, use this shot as the example. Okay. Yes. My, my workflow is to download the card, ingest them with photo mechanic. That's my go-to editing or culling software. Love that software. Cannot say enough good about it. Uh, I am absolutely horrified to think I'd have to work in an Adobe bridge for the rest of my life. I'd probably kill myself. Uh, This is so fast, so beautiful. Cyber-side comparisons, what have you. You can email out of it, whatever you want to do. So enough said about photo mechanics. So uh, I I view the image in photo mechanic. I double-click it. If it's a low ISO image, it, it'll go to Photoshop. Uh, that's my default to open it with. And then it opens in Adobe Camera Raw. And, and I'm a believer in trying to do as much in Adobe Camera Raw as I can that doesn't require precise, precise painting. I hate to paint uh, on a photograph. It's just too tedious to, to erase around every little top of the trees and this and that. So I'm big on luminosity masks. Uh, I do a lot with TK Action 7, which is phenomenal. I would highly recommend it to anyone. Uh, Makes masking super easy, super intuitive. Uh, You can pull out detail and do things to shadow areas you never dreamed you could do before. Okay. And Steve, you touched on a lot of that is the processing on this image and not to brag on me, but it's, again, TK Actions has made a lot of this possible and you can be embarrassed to say that I take the lasso tool and make big looping selections and then run levels on those areas. Now, I feather the crap out of that selection. It may be a 300, 400 pixel feathered edge, but that's what I did on the left side. And you'll okay, never so- know there wasn't light hitting that left side. So it was a rough selection. So you basically made your own gradient fill. Uh and then process that separately. But but I want to go back to the luminosity masks. Uh-huh. So for those people who don't know luminosity masks, explain how you're using a luminosity mask on a shot like this. Because most people think of luminosity masks maybe for uh, you know fashion or something like that. How are you using a luminosity mask on this landscape? Well, uh, again, that left side is a perfect example. Uh, the selections or the masks that are made in TK7 are made based on luminosity or brightness. So I picked, you know, it's like you have a certain group of darks, darks one through six. So I'm picking like a darks three or four or five, and it makes a mask of just those dark areas. You see the dark trees on the left side with white clouds right above them. Well, I don't want to try to paint up that dark tree perfectly so it doesn't bleed out into the sky, into that white area right And you'll end it. up with 
either a dark Halos. line around it or the most common, the most common mistake to me in landscape photos is a halo. <laughs> a big halo. Yeah. Oh, it's horrific. But that luminosity mask will actually select those trees right down to every bristle on the tree perfectly. And then I can brighten that, that selection with a variety of tools, curves, levels, uh, brightness, contrast. So, and one of the things I learned watching one of the TK7 videos was that once you lighten an area significantly, I mean, a lot, it gets kind of milky and hazy looking. We've all done this. We've brightened up the shadows to where it looks like crap. It looks like it's foggy. You need to add a ton of clarity back into that exact same area. Guess what? The Luminosity Max has already got that dark area masked out for me. Right. Now I can apply that clarity right to those exact same pixels. And it, none of it bleeds over into the areas that it doesn't belong. And it puts the detail back into those dark areas that were quite a bit brightened up. So it's that alone is worth the, the 40 bucks or 50 bucks for the TK actions, in my opinion. Okay. Interesting. Can't say so, enough good about it. Well, and the other thing is you just touched on something else, and that is it's selective processing, which is, again... That's one of my biggest tips I always give people is stop doing, I mean, don't stop. I mean, yes, there are reasons to do obviously global adjustments, but stop <laughs> doing, you know, so much structure or clarity or, or, you know, fill in your processing of choice here globally <laughs> when really all you care about is that it's in a selective particular spot, which brings me to this. I mentioned that I've messed these up before. I have stood on banks of water. I have tried it and, and it's been crystal smooth, you know, just wonderful reflections. And I think a lot of times it's my processing that I'm messing up on more than anything. Cause again, I just don't see this, this type of genre mm -hmm. for somebody like you, if somebody wants to get better reflection images, cause again, people go, go look at, at his website. Cause Adam has reflection shot after reflection shot that will blow your mind. It's that amazing. <laughs> What's the key to getting? I've seen reflection well, shots in water that isn't glass, by the way, that are awesome. Yes, there can be. Uh, What's I mean, the I key like to, tell... to getting that, that good reflection? Well, you got to have a, a windless day. I mean, the wind is the killer. If it ripples it up significantly, then the reflection's just kind of dull and all messed up. But I tell the people that I work with on workshops that if you can see it, you can photograph it. If it's there, it should show up, maybe not as strong on your raw image, but then again, the raw processing. I process the water in this separate from the rest of the top of the photo. So you just a simple brush, just run around in uh, Adobe Camera Raw with the Claret, uh, the dehaze tool, not, not cranked up to 25 or 30, but a few points, maybe a little extra contrast just, and then darken the lower section so that it looks normal, that it's not as bright or the same as the upper you half of the You dehaze the water. And I would oh. just say in general, you don't fix bad photos by cranking the dehaze tool up all the way. No, but you uh, dehaze so the water. Brilliant. Crunchy. I love that. I love yeah. that. Um, yeah. So I, I'm going to say it again. One of, if not the best, I mean, there's a million great reflection shots. Don't misunderstand me. But this shot is so good. 
man. It is it is one of the best reflection shots I, I have ever seen. <laughs> well, Go I'm, to the I'm website honored. if you're listening on audio, or for that matter, if you're watching the video and you want to see the picture, not in a video form, uh, behindtheshot.tv, find the episode and click the link in the gallery at the bottom. I've got the image in there. So I have a question for you because you shoot... Again, these the, this multiple genres, including the macro stuff and and reptiles and everything, right? Right. Who's a photographer that you uh, know of and appreciate their work that other people may not know of and they really should? Ooh, that, that people don't know because most of the people that I admired early on are still around. Uh, you know, Art Wolf, of course. Uh, top guy in the world and John Shaw, both of whom I've had the pleasure to actually work with. I looked at their books, uh, especially John Shaw's books early on about exposure and uh, landscapes and macro. He did a book on everything. They're extremely well-written and still extremely relevant today. Okay. So those are two good picks and I will make sure links to those and the uh, luminosity mask plugins are in the show notes for this. Uh, BehindTheShot.tv, Adam. I can't say thank you enough for doing this, man. I I am I was so excited about this because again, as I was saying, I make mistakes. One of there was a shot in my head when we were at uh, two places actually, one at June Lake, and then another one when we were in Acadia, and I was trying to get these reflection shots, and I know it's still in there. I'm going to revisit them now. I just know it. I know the shots in there. I'm just and I know the composition is okay. I'm having trouble getting that look. You know what I mean? That makes yeah, people let, let, stop. And let me just say one thing about the polarizer. I don't want to leave people hanging on what yeah. I talked about there. Uh, the polarizer can actually remove a lot of the reflection from the water. So you have to be careful. It may be really helping what's going on in the sky and the vegetation on the mountain and all that. So in that case, if it is indeed removing it from the water, I'll shoot one where the polarizer turns to where the sky's great, and then I just turn it back to where the reflection comes back on and shoot a second shot if I have to. Uh, so, and then you can layer on. the two together. I, I mean, obviously I'm familiar with a polarizer stopping reflections, and I usually think of that when I'm shooting at water and I want to shoot through the water, or I'm shooting right. at some reflective surface and I want to stop the reflective surface. I never thought about this scenario, though. A polarizer would stop, would would mess up this water reflection on this glassy it, water, even at this, you know, you're not shooting down at it. You're shooting across it. It would still mess correct. it up. It can indeed reduce it tremendously. I mean, it, it's right there in the viewfinder. All you got to do is turn it. If it's right. helping it, great. If it's not, then either take it off or shoot two shots. Right. I like it. I but like I never it. leave home without a polarizer. That's my go-to filter. Uh, that's about the only filter I use anymore outside of a neutral density filter for, you know, moving water and stuff. Interesting. All right. Uh, again, Adam, thank you so much. I want to make sure that people that are listening to audio can find you. So first of all, and it's been coming up as we've been doing. So if you watch the video, watch the lower thirds or check the show notes, all the links to everything Adam Jones are in the show notes, right? So you can always go there and get those, but let's just run through them really quick. Your website is what? Uh, adamjonesphoto.com and that's p-h-o-t-o.com okay so adamjonesphoto.com Facebook is the same actually it's Adam Jones yes. Photo 
Uh, right. Instagram, also Adam's Jones photo. It's yeah, Adam underscore Jones photo. Exactly. Underscore between each word, Adam it, Jones photo, but underscore correct. between the words. And Twitter is Adam's camera. So go give Adam some love, follow him. <laughs> and I'm serious. Go look at his, his portfolio because... He has a ton of work up there, by the way. Yeah, come see has just me. I've got workshops work. and tours. I know we're all uh, bogged down with this year, but next year we're going to try to get out and get traveling again. And, and I do all my workshops, tours in a very relaxed, informal setting. Uh, you know, we learn a ton, but we also have a lot of fun along the way. It's not all just hardcore, rah, rah, rah. You got to do this, you got to do right. that and regimented. Uh, it's very informal, very approachable. Uh, again, we just have a lot of fun and, and enjoy the camaraderie along the way. Well, and I love what you said about this particular shot where it was effectively a private workshop, but you had enough time built in to be able to go back to that same spot three times and try again. And that's wonderful to me. That's right. awesome. So the gentleman again, I was with would defer to my judgment, which was great. <laughs> right. If I wish I could get people to do that for me, they just don't. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for doing this. Man. Steve, it's been a pleasure, sir. I Hope appreciate you your time, everybody. Adam Jones, make sure that you check out his website again. It's Adam Jones photo, P-H, not F if you're in, in a, another country that spells it differently. AdamJonesPhoto.com. And uh, all the links are on the website at BehindTheShot.tv. Just go find this episode. You can also find us, of course, on YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts in audio or video format, assuming that your podcast app supports video. And all those links are up at the website as well. I do want to remind you, uh, Don Komarechka and I are still doing our monthly image critique shows. We stream them live to YouTube. If you want to participate in that simple, all you got to do is go join our Flickr group, Behind the Shot on Flickr. So sign up for a Flickr account for your paid, doesn't matter. Join the Behind the Shot group, start sharing your images, participating, having fun in the community. And then if you add the Flickr tag, BTS critique, that's kind of like you saying, I'm willing for you guys to use this shot and critique it in the show. We select from those. And once a month, we have a guest on with us as well. Alan Hess is going to be our guest in January, which I'm really looking forward to. <clears throat> but you can go look at, uh, at least by the time I'm recording this, uh, you can go look at past ones too. Those are all up on the YouTube channel. And those don't go into the podcast feed. They're only on YouTube. So make sure you head up to Behind the Shot on YouTube. If you subscribe there, make sure that you hit the bell. And last thing, just another another reminder, Princeton Photo Workshops. It's actually PrincetonPhotoWorkshop.com. My class coming up April of 2021, three consecutive weeks uh, one night per week. It's going to be a lot of fun on low light action photography. And I hope to see you there. I'm Steve Brazel. This is Behind the Shot. We will see you on the next show. 